Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. We're counting down toward Labor Day, the traditional end of summer, which means we have an end of summer clips episode for you. This week, we're spotlighting Roy Lichtenstein History in the Making, 1948 to 1960, and I'll be joined by the show's two co-curators, Marshall Price and Elizabeth Finch. The exhibition examines Lichtenstein's early work, with particular attention to Lichtenstein's synthesis of European modernism, American painting, and contemporary vernacular sources. The show is on view at the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University through January 8, 2023. The excellent exhibition catalog was published by Rizzoli Electa. IndieBound and Amazon offer it for about $33. Prince and Finch are curators at the Nasher and Colby, respectively. Colby originated the exhibition. Marshall Price, after the break. On view through October 30th at the Getty Center, the imaginative new exhibition, Cy Twombly, Making Past Present, explores the American artist's lifelong fascination with ancient Greece and Rome. Through evocative groupings of Twombly's paintings, drawings, prints, and sculpture made from the mid-20th to the early 21st century, the show traces a journey of encounters with and responses to ancient Mediterranean art and poetry. The exhibition, produced with the Museum of Fine Arts Boston, includes sculpture from the artist's personal collection on public display for the first time. Plan your visit, learn about related events, and book free advance reservations today at getty.edu. The Summer Immersive Series is back at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston. Experience Leandro Ehrlich, Seeing is Not Believing, an exhibition that comes to life. Unlock your imagination and cast your reflection onto the multi-story building or become the patient in the psychiatrist's office. Add to your summer bucket list and get tickets at mfah.org slash Leandro Ehrlich. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, presents a survey of contemporary art from around the state. The exhibition Reckoning and Resilience, North Carolina Art Now, brings together 30 emerging and established artists. This group survey, featuring approximately 100 works, presents an expansive view of contemporary art in North Carolina, both in terms of regional geography and artistic approaches. The show includes drawing, painting, sculpture, photography, ceramics, textiles, performance, and experimental video. The artists explore themes surrounding historical and current events, identity, loss, remembrance, trauma, and healing. All works are on view at the Nasher for the first time. Visit nasher.duke.edu. A Movement in Every Direction, Legacies of the Great Migration, is now on view at the Mississippi Museum of Art. This exhibition explores the profound impact of the Great Migration on the social and cultural life of the United States from historical and personal perspectives. Co-organized with the Baltimore Museum of Art, the exhibition features newly commissioned works by 12 acclaimed Black artists working across a variety of media. Through the artists' distinct and dynamic installations, a movement in every direction reveals a new spectrum of contexts that shaped the Great Migration and explores the ways in which it continues to reverberate today in both intimate and communal experiences. The exhibition is on view at the Mississippi Museum of Art in Jackson through September 11, 2022. Learn more at msmuseumart.org. Welcome back. Marshall Price, thanks for joining me. You're welcome. Good to be here. Before we jump in, let me outline a quick bit of background Lichtenstein biography. So he does his undergrad at Ohio State. In 1943, he's drafted into the Army. 
the next year, at the end of 44, his unit is sent to England and then into France and Belgium and the Ardennes as part of the Battle of the Bulge. Within four months of arriving in Europe, a, a very young Royal Liechtenstein is in Germany and, and the Allies win, win the war. So at this point, Liechtenstein is in Europe and he has some time and ability to poke around. Where does he go and what does he see? Well, he went to Paris for several days. He visited Louvre. And we know this because he wrote back home to his parents and mentioned a number of the things that he saw while he was over in Europe. So, you know, I mean, the, one of the interesting things is that Roy Lichtenstein grew up in New York, so he was familiar with European art already from going to the Metropolitan Museum, of course. But I think this gave him the opportunity to see some some things that he probably knew of in reproduction, but you know, had not been able to see in person prior to that. So does he see Picasso and other fairly contemporary artists while he's in Europe? He he does. He sees Cezanne's, the card players, is one of the works that he mentions seeing. He also buys a number of books on modern art. So he's definitely looking at, at this material pretty early on. And I will say, too, that you know, even though he was in Ohio State as an undergrad just prior to the war and after the war, the curriculum at Ohio State was fairly progressive. And the students, I think, there were encouraged to look at, at modern uh, European art. How and when does Liechtenstein begin to work what he saw in Europe and, and material from those books into his paintings? I would say as soon as he comes back, but maybe it's manifested most clearly. I mean, certainly in our show in this early body of pastels that were part of his MFA thesis show, they, I would say they most clearly show this, you know, sort of quasi cubist influence. The, the sort of three big influences at this point in, in Lichtenstein's work are Picasso, of course, there's a surrealist dimension vis-a-vis -vis Miro and also Paul Clay, a sort of, you know, childlike, naive almost approach to image making, you know, a, a la Clay or, or someone like that. And maybe some Gorky, too. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure he was aware of what was going on, you know, in New York in the, in the 30s, in the 40s and uh, early 50s. At the risk of being... <laughs> being the rude host who asks you to explain the joke. Tell me what we see in Lichtenstein's 1948 pastel, The Canon. I, I, sh I should note that in his title, Lichtenstein spells the canon, C-A-N-N-O-N. -N -N. <laughs> I mean, one of the things that's, that's a common thread throughout this early group of works, these pastels, is already we see this interest in archetypes. There are figures like woman knitting, the diver. There's also a technological dimension to some of these works, especially with the diver created, you know, the year that probably not coincidentally, the year that Jacques Cousteau used scuba gear to realize a major underwater excavation. And I think the canon, you know, perhaps is a result of his exposure to just witnessing the war firsthand and coming back and, and seeing you know, I'm sure seeing large armaments uh, up close. It's an abstracted work, uh, very clearly 
gun-like object that almost appears to have this rotational axis in the middle of it, this large red rotational axis, and one, possibly two figures on the right-hand side uh, functioning the, the, the cannon. The barrel appears to be off the paper to the left, but it's, it's definitely some sort of armament device. Those two figures could, could be read as a mother and child, which is, of course, foundational to the European canon, C-A-N-O-N, and the whole thing could be read as Liechtenstein taking aim at the canon. <laughs> it very well could be. It's, you know, I mean, there is a lot of subversive types of, I think, messaging in, in a lot of this work that Beth and I discovered along the way in this project. So ad- advancing through the chronology of the show, in 1951, Liechtenstein becomes interested in both American history painting, which is a genre that no one much thinks about anymore, and in the American West. Why did each interest him, and how does he address each in the paintings he's making right after he finishes school? I think it's helpful if we kind of zoom out a little bit and look at the larger historical context of this moment, you know, in the late 1940s and early 1950s. And one of the things that we've articulated in in the show and in the catalog is that Roy Lichtenstein's interest in these subjects was, you know, at least in large part due to the fact that the U.S. was undergoing a kind of, you know, revivification, if you will, after World War II. And there was this great moment in which, beginning in the sort of 40s, I mean, it goes back even earlier, of course, but there was a, a great deal of of interest again in this mythical narrative of American exceptionalism. So like, for example, in 1951, you know, he paints a painting, two, two versions of Washington crossing the Delaware based on, as you know, Tyler, the Emanuel Lloyd's history painting of the same name at the Metropolitan Museum. It's the centennial year of Lloyd's painting. So it's an opportunity for people to sort of revisit this this mythical narrative of American exceptionalism. So I'm glad you you raised an example of a specific history painting that that Lichtenstein took on. How did he make it his own? And I guess I don't just mean formally, but but maybe ideologically too. Well, I mean, it's most easy for us to see the formal differences for sure. You know, the the works are rendered in a kind of quasi naive style that you know, has, I think, sort of tentacles into folk art and children's art. But I think beyond that, one of the things that we discovered that was part and parcel of the fabric of Roy Lichtenstein from day one was his wonderful sense of humor and his sharp wit and satirical eye. And so I think, you know, in a work uh, or works like Washington Crossing the Delaware, he's really poking fun at this overarching myth of American history and American American exceptionalism. Um, I mean, we see it in a number of other works, not just history paintings, but also, I suppose, in some sense, they are history but some of the paintings of the Old West as as well. 
Yeah, you know, before we get to those, you know, one of the things about the two Washington crossing, the Delawares, that jumps out to me, and I don't know if if Liechtenstein had this in mind, and maybe maybe you could address that in a moment, is that here's Liechtenstein informed by Cubism, and and he's really flattening these paintings out, right? He's he's eliminating pictorial space and depth, and may be making an argument that American history and the American historical st- story has also been been flattened and perhaps oversimplified. Yeah, I, I think that's definitely possible. You know, I think the formal qualities of the painting come from his education at Ohio State and his study or his tutelage with Hoyt Sherman, who ran this experimental drawing studio at Ohio State known as the Flash Lab where students were required to draw using strobe lights that would create an after image in their retinas. So I think for Liechtenstein and his classmates, you know, in college, how you drew was, let's say, more important than what you drew specifically. And Liechtenstein, I think, always kept politics at a bit of arm's length. But I've come to the conclusion that even though he was maybe not as outspoken as other artists, I, I think he thought very carefully about these things. That's that's the conclusion that I've come to throughout the course of this project. We'll have images of both Washington, well, all three, Washington Crossing, the Delawares on manpodcast.com. It's interesting to look at them within the context of that strobe flash drawing technique and to kind of think that and really i think see that there 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 may be some memory of that within within each painting you mentioned a moment ago that in 1952 or so so just the year after these washingtons that Liechtenstein makes a bunch of paintings of or at least referring to native americans why what prompts that and is there a critique here either of native americans or maybe Lichtenstein's own source material. I think there are a couple things going on. Lichtenstein meets a young professor who's who's very close in age to him, Roy Harvey Pierce, who at the time was working on a book on the U.S. and and indigenous populations in in North America, the formation of the the country and indigenous populations, and that was the first time that Lichtenstein was or learned about George Catlin, the well-known portraitist whose large collection of Native American portraits is now at the Renwick Gallery in Washington. And I think on some level, Liechtenstein was probably attracted to Native American design. But beyond that, and I mean, that's a very superficial kind of reading. I, I do think beyond that, Liechtenstein realized or understood some of the horrors that the indigenous populations of, of North America had gone through and recognized that this narrative of manifest destiny and a sort of preordained notion that white European settlers were entitled to the land of this continent was a just a big lie. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, to put it bluntly. And I think he was wanting to be critical of that through through some of these works. 
So a couple years on, in 1954 or so, so kind of halfway through the exhibition uh, chronologically, Lichtenstein is living in Cleveland, and he becomes interested in mechanical devices, the kind of widgets that Midwestern factories were, were belching out during the post-war boom years. He's certainly not the only American painter interested in such. For example, a few years on, Hedda Stern will also be interested in Midwestern manufactured widgets. What about these mechanical devices interest him, and what does he do with them? The mechanical devices are a bit of an enigma in the broader scope of Lichtenstein's oeuvre, I would I would say. They last only for a very short period of time. But again, if you look at these, they're, they're almost all single objects. They're schematic diagrams of various devices, mechanical devices, and they are eerily reminiscent of some of the very first pop works. And so, you know, I think with each of these sort of circumscribed groups of pre-pop works, we can see in some way links to the later works, you know, foundational links to the later works. So, I mean, he only does a relatively small group of these mechanical paintings. He only exhibits, if I'm recalling correctly, just maybe two or three of them uh, publicly. But I think, you know, they're important. They're an important part of the, the story of his searching, really, for, for a more mature style. And yeah, they reflect, you know, what was happening on a practical level in his life. He, one of the odd jobs that he had while he was in Cleveland was painting the faces of dials for machines. And so I think a lot of the, the mechanical paintings reflect that. He had also taken a mechanical drawing class while he was at Ohio State. And in fact, his mentor at Ohio State, Hoyt Sherman, had himself gone to Ohio State a generation before and had started in the engineering department at Ohio State. And two Ohio State professors ended up publishing a a very important engineering drafting manual and had employed the services of Hoyt Sherman to help them illustrate it. So even though these sort of come you know, after Lichtenstein had left college and he moved out of Columbus, I think the imagery itself was 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 already quite familiar to him. And so it was a, a way for him to revisit it. Yeah. In these mechanical device or widget informed paintings, you can absolutely see Lichtenstein simplifying and reducing and making his planes of color simpler in ways that will definitely continue on and inform the pop works after 1960. What was the charge of the Light Brigade, and why does Lichtenstein become interested in it, or does he, depending on the charge of the Light Brigade we're talking about, in 1956? So right around 1956, he does a whole series of paintings that have to do with the West. He's already tackled Western subject matter and Native American subject matter prior to this. But 1956, he does a whole series of of paintings of sort of Western archetypes, the outlaw, you know, the bad guy, the sheriff, what have you. And so Charge of the Light Brigade 
is a bit of an outlier in 1956, but I've come to the conclusion that it's also a kind of harbinger, one harbinger among several at this period of his interest in drawing on popular culture as it's manifested in in terms of like television and imagery. The Charge of the Light Brigade, of course, was a poem by Alfred Lord Tennyson after a battle in which British forces were sent into battle against Russia, uh, heavily underarmed during the Crimean War, and really immortalized in this poem by Alfred Lord Tennyson. If we fast forward into the 1930s, it was made into a movie, a Hollywood movie, that was released, but there was quite a bit of controversy after it was released because the the battle scene, the big battle scene, ended up killing several horses, and so there was a great outcry. The movie studio pulled pulled the film after it had been released, and it was not shown again until... It was shown on television in 1956. And so I have not found any concrete evidence that Lichtenstein saw this on television, but I think that the timing is too coincidental in terms of the creation of this this painting. Another 100th year anniversary, Crimean War ends in 1856, and that's about 100 years. You know, the, the, the date on Lichtenstein's painting, Charge of the Light Brigade, is circa 1956 seems like he might be enjoying these kind of overlapping uh i don't know coincidences isn't quite the right word but you know the way he can lay these things on top of each other maybe yeah i think when when historical anniversaries popped up on his radar screen he probably took notice and thought "Hmm, that's that's interesting at the end of the 1950s and thus at the end of your show which which runs into 1960 lichtenstein begins painting abstracted ribbons of color what got him there Lichtenstein had been marching toward abstraction beginning around 1957. And, you know, I think like many artists of his generation, he probably felt obligated on some level to at least engage with abstract expressionism. I mean, by 1957, you know, as we know, Abex was beginning to lose steam Certainly by 1959, it, it had prompting a, a, a crisis, uh, if you will, that was reproduced in, in a, a series of articles in Art News. So I think on some level, he began to paint abstractly because he felt he had to. And there is one interview in which he says, I, I made paintings that I thought were what art was supposed to look like at this time. But, you know, the, the fascinating thing about these late works is that they, they do several things. The first thing is they allow him to create a gesture, a mark with his hand that will go on to inform the rest of his work for the rest of his career. The brushstroke, the brushstroke shows up in every subsequent decade of Lichtenstein's work, sometimes in great numbers. The other thing that I would say it allowed him to do, whether this was deliberate or not, was that it was a kind of repudiation of abstract expressionism. For the previous generation, 
the brushstroke was such a subjective and personal marker of one's own identity. You know, we can think of Franz Klein paintings versus Clifford Still paintings versus, of course, Jackson Pollock paintings, all having this signature mark. What Lichtenstein did was he used a rag and he put multiple colors on this rag and dragged it across the canvas, effectively sort of depersonalizing, if you will, the the mark making process or the brushstroke. So in a way, I see it as a kind of repudiation of this earlier generation. And of course, then, you know, not long after this, he immediately turns to this flat cartoonish style of work for which we know him. So it's it's a it's a very important moment, turning point in his career and life. Marshall Price, thanks very much. You're welcome. And good to be here. Thanks, Tyler. And now we turn to your co-curator, Elizabeth Finch. Beth Finch, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you very much. In the catalog for this show, you write about the Midwest's influence on Lichtenstein. And you start with the earliest work in the exhibition, a drawing Roy Lichtenstein made in the very early 1940s. Um, What is the drawing of and how does it point to where Lichtenstein would go, you know, a couple decades before he got there? The Bunyan drawing um, by Lichtenstein, it's from 1940. It's a few years before the exhibition actually officially begins. We, we begin the exhibition in 1948, around the time that Lichtenstein was finishing his master's degree on the other side of World War II. Um, but the, this particular drawing captures Lichtenstein looking at American popular culture, specifically uh, a folk hero, Paul Bunyan, um, perhaps casting himself in as that figure Bunyan. It's not your typical Bunyan, who was a much more generally uh, heavyset um, giant. Um, and this is a sort of live Bunyan. And it's also different than the Rockwell Kent Bunyan, a trade version of Bunyan stories that was written by Esther Shepard, a folklorist, and that Bunyan is the absolutely the archetype of the heavyset, uh, burly Bunyan. This seemed to be kind of almost like the Bunyan as as the idea man <laughs> that Lichtenstein became. So we we thought it was an important one to have in the show for sure. You know, Bunyan, of course, those stories really can be traced back historically to Maine which is where the exhibition is opening. But the Bunyan stories were, Bunyan, the character, was picked up by the Red River Lumber Company, based then in Minnesota, to produce these pamphlets that became this sensation. They, they printed thousands of them, tens of thousands of them, with this character. So it was almost like an early comic book. And um, we can guess that Lichtenstein would have had those and at least would have known the stories. He himself was a camper once in Maine. So this folkloric character represented Western expansionism, was a trace as well to the World's Fair, where Bunyan appeared on the building of public health. So it, it seemed like an important starting place for the exhibition. The Or catalog designer um, has a sense of humor because uh, Rockwell 
Kent's bunion is uh, an image of, of of him is presented in the catalog next to an image of Roy Lichtenstein wearing um, a cream colored sport coat and dark colored slacks. <laughs> I, you know, I just I I, I laughed. Uh, <laughs> So in 1951, which is within, you know, the air quotes official dates of the show, three years in, actually, uh, in 51, Lichtenstein and his wife, Isabel, uh, moved to Cleveland. And at the time, Cleveland, as you note in your essay, was uh, particularly resistant to avant-garde ideas uh, in both art and architecture. How did the city's built environment, and I guess particularly its armory, inform, inform Lichtenstein? That actually goes back to Columbus. So he was in Columbus. He went to OSU. He got both his BA and his MA there. Columbus had one of those late 19th century armories that is also reproduced in the, in the catalog. It was taken down in the late 1950s, and it's now the site of the Wexner Center. And in fact, the Peter Eisenman's design references this one tower that Armory famously had. But when Lichtenstein returned to Columbus to finish his, his degree and to ultimately go on and get a master's, he would have seen this. And I think, you know, in the years after World War II was looking and thinking about processing his own experience in World War II in the midst of a U.S. in ascendancy after, uh, after the war, and would have seen this musty sign of um, of might. And then when he moved on to Cleveland, right near where he lived was another armory. It still stands today. I think it was possibly an inspiration for these medievalizing works that he looked at. We know he also looked at the Bayou, a book on the Bayou Tapestry, and one of the important things about the show is the way it works with print culture. Um, and often, you know, Lichtenstein sources were the, the most mainstream sources he could get on a major cultural landmark like the Bayou Tapestry. But I think these this mix from where he was as, as a New Yorker in, in Ohio, um, first in Columbus and then in Cleveland, as well as these other influences became a way of playing with imagery. So you have, for instance, the self-portrait as the knight that we borrowed from the Cleveland Museum, a few carved sculptures that he made using, we think, uh, cast-off uh, chair legs, and also some imagery in, in terms of print. So working between all three media and um, playing with this idea of an archetype of the king, the knight, the warrior in these years after World War II. During, during, during which he was a soldier, of course. Well, speaking of Ohio, the Lichtensteins, of course, were living in Ohio during what we now recognize as the post-World War II baby boom. How might uh, Lichtenstein have engaged with and been informed by the explosion of, of child-oriented culture, like books and toys and Lord knows whatever else? <laughs> right. Well, he um, he absolutely was was part of that culture. Both of his children were born during that period, uh, David and then Mitchell. Um, and his wife, Isabel, worked as an interior designer. And um, we think some of or we know 
Lichtenstein's first collectors were her clients. If you look at his imagery, first the kind of self-taught style of works like Washington Crossing the Delaware, of which he did two versions. He was looking at books on early artistic creativity that were produced in the post-war era that included children's drawings. So he relates to European modernists that he might have, you know, Paul Clay and so forth that he was looking at. So that there's that stylistic factor of an artist at the outset of his career thinking about his origins and in a characteristically playful, perhaps ironic way, picking up this self-taught childlike style really at the end of his art school years and years of art school so that's one factor and then the imagery itself so if we look at the pastels uh, like um, the diver for instance or there's the the pilot I believe is from 1948 it's it's imagery that evokes pilots and Airplanes were a ubiquitous sight in the post-war era or during the during World War II, of course, as well. Um, but the, a figure like the diver relates to some of the things that were happening in terms of Jacques Cousteau. So there was uh, an awareness of that. He was fascinated as, as well at looking at imagery of battles, not bloody battles. They're more so, for instance, battle scene. It's a work from the Museum of Contemporary Art. He was looking like others, and um, I make a connection specifically to Alexander Girard, who was based in the Midwest at that point and was creating toy-like characters that we all know now that are still dull marketed. And some of that imagery, uh, partic- particularly one in which there's a mother and child figure that are integrated into one, seems to come directly from perhaps Lichtenstein looking at Girard. We're not really sure, but he was definitely making a contribution as an artist to a fascination with children's toys at a moment of, you know, we can think of a sort of massed domesticity. You know, it was a great experiment in post-war build-out, right, in terms of the domestic sphere. I think we'll come back to that in a minute. Isabel uh, worked as an interior designer when she and Roy lived in Cleveland. How did Lichtenstein work as a kind of subcontractor to her? That's 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 my word. I don't think that word is in your essay. Um, and how might we uh, think of that? I don't know. I don't want to call it work, but that that production or something. <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm not suggesting these are like signed Roy Lichtensteins, but but they are interesting. Right, right. Well, there are um, there are there's a hi-fi cabinet top that was that that he created as. As a mosaic, there's a, there are a number of these mosaics that he created to um, adorn, to decorate uh, pieces of furniture that uh, she placed in in homes, and those are still around. He also apparently would occasionally hang curtains. We know from some of the interviews that that the Lichtenstein Foundation has has collected with early collectors of Lichtenstein, friends of Lichtenstein. He was part, you know, they were working together basically to cobble together a living. He also decorated the windows of the Halley's department store in Shaker Heights. One of the ways he made a living during this period was to support the work of his wife at that time, 
And, you know, she, as far as we know, had perhaps the more viable um, breadwinning role in that family um, during that period. You mentioned domesticity a moment ago. There is uh, really throughout kind of the peak uh, years of, of Lichtenstein's career, lots of references to to domesticity um, of, of one kind or another, often kind of psychologically loaded. But at the very end of Lichtenstein's life and career, he comes back to domesticity in a series of major and enduring sculptures. Um, what are are those works, and how how do you think they may have been informed by um, the time he spent in Ohio? Yeah, it's a great question. He was working on a series of houses um, at the end of his life. Um, we reproduced small house in in the exhibition. I think in Ohio, um, you know, this was one of the things when I went to do research on the show. I was struck by, um, you know, I'm originally from the West Coast, and I grew up in a place called Santa Barbara, where you're surrounded by um, rich people. Spanish. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, my I, my family moved out there as middle class Midwesterners, um, so that was for me part of my fascination with this with this topic was a curiosity about the Midwest and its relationship uh, to the to the West and to Western expansion, of which it's you know part my history. That wasn't something I, of course, wrote into the essay, but that was that was part of uh, my interest. But when I was in uh, in the Cleveland area, walking around and in the Shaker Heights area, I, you know, I would come across um, in, in one case specifically, one of these, you know, Western Reserve houses. Um, and they look like the kind of house that it kid draws, you know, absolutely simple um, structure, cabin, almost like, you know, I was uh, struck by, by that when I was there, you could really feel that. And I wondered, you know, when Lichtenstein was in, you know, as a New Yorker heading to Ohio, and being there, you know, in the lead up to World War II, and after that fascination with this place that is part of the Western Reserve, um, which, of course, was the first colony of a colony, right? It was it was Connecticut, the Connecticut Western Reserve. And you you really feel that, you know, that the historical markers are everywhere and present um, when you're in that area. So I think this sense of of home, of course, this is some a work like Small House is it is has many resonances that that period in his life. And you see it as well in terms of the pop or later works where Lichtenstein was looking at domestic interiors, that that very much remained part of his aesthetic vocabulary. And I think Ohio factors into that in some way. When I was doing research for this essay, I came across Another essay, it's by a historian, um, and I believe he's also would identify as a cultural geographer um, by the name of John Locke. And he wrote an essay called uh, Why the Midwest Matters. My response was exactly, <laughs> you know, that, that, that the Midwest mattered for, in my case, you know, I was thinking about Liechtenstein, that it mattered as a place where he could tap into 
mainstream American culture, which of course he would have encountered in New York City as well, but with fresh eyes. And and that that, that helped him to develop a natural inclination for satire, humor, being able to delve into significant aspects of American culture through popular sources. Beth Finch, thanks so much. Thank you. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.